Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made four low-budget feature films of varying success, and I've been to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. We haven't done one of these in a long time, but I've been extremely hopeful that we could do it with somebody who's become my friend over the last couple of years and who I sort of, in a peripheral way, knew before I knew him. Uh, I'm talking about Freddie Williams, prolific comic book artist of note. The more recent stuff he's done that I think we've talked about in other material is Batman Ninja Turtles, as well as He-Man and Thundercats, and has been working for both DC and Marvel for, for quite some time. Yeah, primarily DC Comics. I've done a little bit of work for Marvel um, and Dark Horse and IDW, but most of the work has been for, for DC Comics. This is maybe one of the first times we've had somebody who's not strictly a filmmaker, but somebody who has worked on properties that are in film all the time, probably best known from film and TV. Yeah. So it, it's a world that I know very little about, so I'm going to ask some really stupid questions along the way about <laughs> the comic book industry. Uh, let's go all the way back to the beginning. So where, where did you grow up? I was born in Arkansas, but we moved when I was so young, I don't remember it. And then I uh, grew up in Kansas City, so downtown Kansas City. Okay, so like middle of the country. Yeah, smack dab in the middle. Um, if, if you look at the continental U.S., we're right in the center. Even now, we, we moved on the Missouri side. Kansas City is our home base. Is that why you're so nice? <laughs> yeah, we're from Smallville, and I learned from this guy named Clark. Now, uh, <laughs> I, there is kind of a small town attitude here of, of trying to be cordial to one another, but we still have the same amount of jerks. They just <laughs> they just disguise it a little bit differently. Did you find that you had innate talent at a really young age, or did that sort of show up later? Like, how did you discover that you were you? I don't remember a time before I wanted to draw. Um, I remember wanting to stay in from recess, like stay in the classroom whenever I was like in first and second grade to draw He-Man and to draw Superman. Uh, I, that was more fun to me than going out to play. And I usually was one of the better artists in the class, encouraged by the teacher, like, wow, that's really great. Um, but it was where I hit about... 13 or 14 years old, all within a couple of months, the following happened. I saw Jim Lee's X-Men number 272 during the Extinction Agenda was what the miniseries was called. Then I saw ElfQuest book three, and that's drawn by Wendy Penny, like in the 70s and 80s. But I discovered this book at a local library. This would have been like in 1989 or something. And then also I met somebody who would become my best friend when I was in high school, a guy named Tyrone Crockett. And he was the best artist in the school. He was a senior when I was a freshman. We would draw together and we would kind of critique each other's work. And I was constantly looking at how he was constructing figures and learning that sort of thing. So it was a big transition period of growth and taking comic books seriously as a career and devote my life to it as opposed to just being interested in it uh, as a consumer or something. I wonder if 14 is a significant age for a lot of other people because like 14 was a really big year for me. You fall into friend groups that reinforce either positive or negative behaviors. You know, what happens if you never find that person? Uh, I would have dealt drugs. I'm not even joking. I've never consumed alcohol or drugs, but I grew up in a... Um, you know, not the greatest area, and we were relatively poor. It felt like dealing drugs would probably be the best <laughs> option to get out of there, in quotes. Um, now, looking back, that would have been a really big mistake. I'm glad we didn't go down that route, um, but I was dangerously close to that. So I graduated high school in 1995, and there was a big 
downturn in the comic book market around 1994. So there was this huge, what they call the collector's bubble or the speculation bubble that happened where there was like millions and millions of comic books being sold, uh, like X-Men number one, uh, Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane, X-Force number one by Rob Liefeld. All these books sold millions of copies, and that created a speculator bubble where people were investing in the books, hoping that an issue number one of something, maybe if they buy a box of them, then in 20 years, it'll be each copy of those will be worth a grand or 10 grand. Back in the 40s and 50s, comic books were seen just as you would maybe a newspaper or something very disposable. The few that, that survived would end up becoming valuable because everybody else had thrown theirs away or didn't take care of them or something. So then that's an authentic version of scarcity that creates a value in the, the remaining copies. So now there was no scarcity. These really high selling books meant that there was huge value that was being awarded to the pencilers, the inkers through royalties and stuff like that. So in 95, I went to a comic book convention and I was showing my portfolio around. And I was showing my work to a guy named Larry Stroman, who drew X-Factor and then uh, later drew The Tribe for Image Comics. You know, he was giving me some pointers and then he said, well, it's been kind of hard for even professional artists ever since the, ever since the bubble burst or ever since the market dropped out. Or He said something like that. And... I was like, wait, what do you mean? And he goes, and I remember him looking up from his table <laughs> going, you haven't heard about this? And I said, no. And he basically laid out very quickly what I just communicated to you. And I felt like a total idiot. <laughs> I was like, I have no fallback plan. So during that time, I was working all sorts of, of jobs like at Subway and the Turnpike and working maintenance at an amphitheater and just whatever. But during that time, my sister was working at a Goodwill and sometimes people would just drop off magazines they didn't know what to do with. She would just collect them for me and I would go through and like look for reference photos so that I could learn how to draw clothing and stuff because this is at a time basically before the internet. And even if the internet existed, I wouldn't have had a computer. So I was still interested in that as an art form, but I just wasn't sure about the viability of it as something that could sustain me as a career. Comic book art was your art. Why is that? Is it because your influences were from the comic world mostly? Potentially. The cartoon of Super Friends and the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, those movies were appealing to me even when I was so young that I... I wasn't sure why they might appeal to me. Um, later on, like in retrospect, I, I grew up without a father. And I think that Superman created a, like a father figure of like this perfectly powerful, but just and measured individual that would look over things and, you know, make sure you're okay. Um, that was probably part of the appeal. And maybe there's an intimacy when you're reading it similar to a novel or something, but I felt really engrossed with reading ElfQuest a million times, like rereading the same comic book over and over. It was really that storytelling format that yeah. you sparked to in a lot of ways. Like, was there any point where you were like, well, animation's kind of interesting too, or was it like... So when I was about 12 years old, I really got into the Ninja Turtles, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And I remember trying to draw cell animation without knowing what I was doing. I knew it was something like this, where you draw a bunch of incrementally changing pieces of artwork. And um, my goal was to draw Leonardo, like pulling out a sword and then slashing down and cutting an arrow in half as it was coming at him. And it it was a nightmare. I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember spending days on this and realizing I had like in the animation, I had slowly dislocated his hips the way that I had drawn like the pose as he exploded upward and stuff. So that was maybe a week that I wanted to do something in animation before I realized that that really wasn't for me. There's something about the flow of a page, sequential going left to right and then top to bottom. And you can play with time. If somebody is a reader and they're really immersed in it, I, I think we're kind of cooperating to create that that flow and 
uh, the slowdown or the speed up of, of the action. I mean, a lot of your work strikes me as high detail, which you don't see a tremendous amount of animation. It would be basically impossible to do that, or you would have constant sketchy stray lines that are going everywhere to be distracting because you wouldn't be able to. So like, let's say there's a, a deltoid muscle and, and I might have added like a series of swirl marks to basically to indicate the topographical information, the roundness of it. Um, if you did that in animation and somebody was moving, there'd be a series of different sketch lines. And unless you drew on a different layer, the same sketch line and then rotated it with it, it would be so strange to try to make that work. I think clean, uh, clean forms, what's called cell shaded rendering works much better for animation. Unless the bicep moves all the way around the arm, like in Son of Zorn, that <laughs> like in the <laughs> yes, other yes. discount film school I was watching. Chrissy, yes. You two both being my kind of art friends, I compare your experiences to some degree. While she does have kind of a Chrissy style, she had to adopt other styles. Do you find yourself having to do that? Or when you're hired, are they hiring the Freddy style? That's a great question. Um, there is a balance of becoming a unique individual and then that becomes your brand versus being accidentally being so unique that you're on the outskirts and now you're only very niche and they can only apply you to very specific uh, rare projects. There's like a difference in style as far as rendering, which is like the detail and the type of uh, sh shading and that sort of thing. Uh, so that can be contributed to style. Also a part of style is um, the structure. So if you draw something that's very cartoony and it's very animated looking, that's a part of your style as well. So the structure of what I'm drawing is mostly the same, meaning there's it's a little cartoony, but it's not like huge eyes, huge hands. It's not that type of Mickey Mouse sort of cartoony. It's got a little bit of manga, a little bit of like Arthur Adams or J. Scott Campbell feel to it. And then the rendering style, I'm always very willing to change. So the stuff that maybe most people know me from the last couple of years is like an ink wash style. So if you looked at the original piece of artwork on the piece of paper, it's all in shades of gray and it looks a lot like watercolor, but it's actually diluted India ink, like an archive safe ink. And then you apply different levels of water to make shades of gray and then uh, but it looks a lot like watercolor if you've seen that as well the textures and stuff that you get and uh, so that's one version of rendering and then uh, another version that I'm very familiar with is a pen and ink and then there's several different styles to that as well if it's like a mainstream superhero book it probably makes sense to go for a more open which means less individual lines uh, pen and ink style so not the ink wash stuff and not super heavy spot blacks um, because super heavy spot blacks might make more sense for a Batman or Daredevil or Noir, that type of a, of a feel. But it's good to have your own spin on it so that you're not trying to look too much like another artist. But there are plenty of artists who are essentially a clone of another artist in as many ways as possible. And, and sometimes it works really well. And then other times you feel like, wow, that, that, that person really hasn't found their own voice and it's almost disappointing to see them be so successful <laughs> because they've just like kind of globbed on to another person's style so much so that it looks like a, a poor imitation. You know, especially if we're talking about characters that have been around for 80 years, I want to see somebody uh, experiment and I want to see things that I've never seen before. But I also, I'm not reading stuff weekly either. I, I read comics sort of like I read like novels, you know, like across a year or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in that same boat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't read stuff uh, weekly as well. I usually wait for a trade to come out, like a collection of books, and then read it and process it more as like a one large piece of art. So let's go back to the, the sort of career timeline. So you've now committed to the idea of being a comic book artist, and then you were given advice that that was a really bad idea. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, kid, what are you doing? <laughs> I felt like I had ran as fast as I could, jumped off the ledge of something, and just assumed there would be a ledge not too far down from that. And then I realized, oh, I'm really actually falling quite a bit. What it felt like what he was telling me is there's a lot of professional comic book artists who are already have established relationships with editors that you're going to be competing against. So it's going to be really hard for you to break in. So what I took that to mean was you should probably just work on your own stuff, whether you have a publisher or not, just keep refining your skills. It was also at a time where I didn't really have the chops to do like a 22 or 30 page story continuously because I could do like maybe a three to five page story, but I didn't have the endurance or the, the sort of scope or range of the visual storytelling language vocabulary to connect an entire long form story. So there was plenty for me to figure out before I could break in anyway. And if I was working at the turnpike and I oftentimes got the shifts that no one else wanted because I was low on the totem pole, I would bring artwork stuff with me and I would just draw all night because I usually had the, the, the really late night or early morning shifts. And it was just a way for me to still learn and do something while I was on the clock and everybody else was either reading or listening to the radio. And then I was just drawing the whole time. So this would have been around the time of like the dot-com bubble. I had a friend who had Dreamweaver and uh, FrontPage, which are some pretty old uh, web design oh, yeah. programs. My first website was built in FrontPage 95. So I, I did some freelance web design um, because basically if somebody hired me freelance, I could do, uh, you know, original illustrations for them. And then I moved to Texas. Tyrone, when he had graduated from high school, when he went to college, he moved to Texas and he's never moved back to Kansas. His suggestions was that there's more opportunities for freelance web design for graphic art stuff. And at the time, there was a lot of comic book conventions there. And so I called the local convention center. I said, yeah, I was just hoping to get um, like a schedule of the comic book conventions that you know are happening there because uh, we're right outside of Dallas. The guy who I spoke to, <laughs> he said, um, oh, there's not really a lot of comic book conventions anymore. Uh, yeah, I think um, the guy who was organizing them was like embezzling money or something. So there's not really any comic conventions now. <laughs> The comic book organizer that was doing most of these shows had basically been run out of town. So all the wind had been deflated from me for a second time. So before I was working like maintenance jobs and whatever other jobs, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I just want to point that out for anybody who's listening. It's just not in my you know, preferred career path. And here I was doing freelance web design, making a living, but barely. It would be like occasionally you'd get a thousand dollar check. And that felt like the most money I'd ever had in my life. Uh, and wow. Tyrone was helping out quite a bit as well. Cause he was working for mobile oil at the time. So he had a pretty good paycheck and a steady gig. That wow. Was so good, he but... was a critical part of your life at like various intervals. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, um, Hell of a guy. I remember being in high school, you have like that scene that's kind of cliche where like some jocks come up and start messing with you. And my mentality was we're going to have to physically fight these guys. Instead, he's so funny. He just diffused the situation. He was so much smarter than these guys that he was kind of making fun of them, but in a way that was making them laugh. And he diffused it. They were laughing. And we left almost like a, yeah, yeah, good seeing you type of situation. I had not even thought of that. He just like Ben Kenobi'd the whole thing. <laughs> yes. I very much patterned my, my personality, especially at that time period after him. So after about eight months of being in Texas and barely kind of eking out a living, I moved back and then Kiki and I got a duplex shortly after that. I ended up working at a place that created jewelry and little membership flags for Rotary International. You've probably seen on signs, there'll be like a graphic representation of a lion. And then next to it, there'll be like this big thing that looks like a spoke wheel. And it says Rotary international and that's like a business club that 
every city and state has. I worked there for about a year, and that was the first steady graphic arts job that I ever had. And then I heard through Kiki, her aunt, who had some ties to Hallmark Cards, which is in Kansas City, they were looking to hire a whole bunch of different graphic artists. They were trying to make this job position that would be like a universal artist who could both design and do tech stuff and do pre-press. So I ended up getting hired at Hallmark Cards. That blew me away that I could be working at Hallmark. It just never entered my mind. Part of the application process was that all the applicants had to perform this color test. Part of the job that we were doing was called color separation, where you would try to get the printed result to look like the original piece of artwork. They're like, you can take up to four hours to do this test. The goal was to take these color swatches that were purposely made to be not exact matches to their color targets and get as close as you possibly could. But there was hundreds of these. If you failed this, you wouldn't get the job, basically. They brought me into this color-controlled room, so it's like the lighting was neutral. I've since learned that there's a science that your eyes will try to make similar colors the same color. Essentially, if you take a long time to make color judgments, um, it works against you. Your initial observations are usually the correct ones, like what looks similar, because if not, your eyes will start to make them the same color. I could just tell what my eyes were doing, so I just started going through really quickly, and I made a bunch of very fast judgments. Um, so I had the the test done in under an hour. And when he came in, he said, um, you're done with the test? And I said, yeah. And he was like, are you sure? And I said, yeah. Um, and then that made me feel even more self-conscious. But I, I scored in the 90% of like almost the very top. And there was like 200 people that they hired. Most of them just labored. Was the four-hour time frame, was that just, was that a part of the test? Like a psychological part to, to trick you? And then I worked there for about um, seven years. And so Hallmark Writers give you assignments for like, hey, we need this, we need that, and, and that's what you do all day? For the most part, what we did was uh, redesign. So if there would be a piece of artwork that was uh, like a bunny with a bunch of Easter eggs, so it's you know more green and yellow in color scheme, and it's a really cute bunny, but he's holding an egg, and they want to change that into a Valentine's Day card. Basically, Photoshop all of the eggs into hearts, and then you would change the color scheme instead of green and yellow into you know, more lavenders and pinks and reds. So you're doing as much graphic design as you are illustrations. Yeah, actually, probably more. Whenever we would do original illustration stuff, that was like celebrated in the team. They would show it at the next weekly meeting. And, you know, this is the the, the brand new piece that Freddie had drawn. And ever, since there's so much redesign, people would actually go, oh, original? Hallmark must license superheroes because I see superheroes on Hallmark cards sure. all the time. Did you get to incorporate some of your comic book love into the Hallmark job? I did, yeah. Um, Hallmark does these like birthday packs where you can buy a bunch of napkins and a centerpiece display and plates that are all branded as Superman or whatever. At the time, there was this over-the-top centerpiece. It would basically be like a foot and a half or two feet tall once it's assembled, and then it would be like two feet wide or something, and it's all made of cardboard. So I drew a Superman display where, unfortunately, I drew everything but Superman because they had a licensed piece of artwork that was from a... I don't know if it was drawn specifically for it or if it was from a style guide or something, but I got to draw all the buildings and the, some of the villains, and there was like uh, debris and like a Lex Luthor off to the side and Jimmy Olsen and all this stuff. And then I did a bunch of stuff where it'd be like uh, Snoopy, like, you know, peanuts, but uh, the pose just needs to be altered a little bit. You know, have to follow certain style rules of never having the arms foreshortened and stuff. There was all these rules to it. And then you would always make everything look wiggly whenever you would illustrate it. Um, so you'd alter stuff all the time. When do you leave Hallmark? This is the craziest time of my life. Um, my 
the early 2000s, comic books were becoming stronger. And by 2003, it seemed like a more realistic possibility that I might be able to break in as a professional comic book artist. Mid-2005, Kiki and I went to the San Diego Comic-Con and I submitted a portfolio at DC Comics. You would fill out this, this waiver and you would attach it to your portfolio and slide it into the slot in the wall uh, for the display at uh, the Comic-Con. And then that night, they would go through all of the different applicants and pull, pull out like maybe five or six. And I was in that group. And so then the next day, you come in for your portfolio review. Uh, and that went really well. I interviewed with an art director named Richard Bruning, who essentially ended up getting me hired at DC. That was like a really big moment. I was very nervous. The critiques he gave me, I really took to heart. Any of the new pages that I was working on, and this would have been for my own stuff and for Image Comics, there was some small stuff I was getting published. I would incorporate it into the new work, and then I would email him new pages that I'd done every single week. So it'd be like between three to five pages a week. And this is while I was still working full-time at Hallmark Cards. So what I wanted to show Richard was that I was dedicated and still I was very productive and uh, was good with criticism and that sort of thing. And by October of 2005, I, I got my first gig with DC. But it's not like as soon as I got it, I quit Hallmark. There was actually a little bit over a year overlap between the two. My first work at DC Comics was Seven Soldiers, Mr. Miracle, and then Robin. And Robin was an ongoing series, so I was drawing it monthly. And I was working on Hallmark cards at the same time. So I was under a similar schedule that you do. Hearing you describe essentially getting very little sleep and then you have to get up early for the bus ride. And that, that whole time you're in editing mode and then you have your full-time job. The entire time you're awake, there's there's active thought and production going on. Even if it's not visible to anyone else, your, your brain is still on it. That was about a year and a half for me at, at Hallmark where I was working on Robin. But I was afraid that DC would just stop giving me work. By early 2007, DC Comics offered me an exclusive and that just meant that they would guarantee me a certain amount of work a year and then help with um, like health insurance and stuff like that. That ended up working out, and I was under exclusive for about six years with them. Um, and then in 2012, I left the exclusive, and then now I've been working still mainly for DC, but um, can do work for IDW and Dark Horse and Marvel. For years, you didn't necessarily think that that would ever happen, and then it happens. You know, yeah. Was that like the most elating thing? At Hallmark, I worked four tens. And on, I had Fridays off and then, of course, Saturday, Sunday off. And on Friday, I got a call from Peter Tomasi, who was the editor who actually hired me. He woke me up because he's calling from New York at the time, and I was sleeping in on my day off. And it's almost like I was a little out of it. And so this felt kind of dreamy. And um, after I got off the phone with him and he was going to be sending me a package with the script and paper and all this stuff, it would be official DC stuff. I told Kiki. She got very excited. And then we called her mom, her mom's excitement kind of like hammered it in that it was reality because she got so excited on the phone, the, the sound of her voice. Right after that, what I said was, let's go clean the garage because <laughs> we just moved into our house, the house that we're in now, not long before I got hired. And we still had all these boxes and all this stuff in the garage. And I was like, I don't know when I'm going to actually have a break in my schedule ever again. So that to me was the celebration, was hearing Kiki's mom get excited and then cleaning the garage. <laughs> so just, just walk us through the very basic process of developing a comic book. The writer will give me a script that looks a lot like a screenplay. It'll say, you know, page one, panel one, a... Sometimes they'll indicate camera angle, but not always. But in the situation, let's say they, they'll say like a bird's eye view of Gotham City. Um, and in the background, you can see a silhouette of, of Batman swinging on a rope. And then panel two, uh, we cut to an alleyway, more of a worm's eye view. 
uh, and there's, you know, an old lady about to be mugged and in the background, you can see Batman landing on, you know, the ledge in the background in the shadows or something. Everybody who's listening to this is probably can picture it in their mind, but it's my job as the artist to try to actualize that into an actual image and, and take it from the imagination and, and put it on the paper. And sometimes changing the camera angles, maybe it didn't work the best with a bird's eye view. Maybe the eye flow will actually work better if I kind of combine those two panels together. What I do is in Photoshop, because I do all my layouts digitally, I'll take the script and for each page of the comic book, I'll make a separate Photoshop file. So one, two, three, all the way to 22 or three or four pages. Um, and then in the script, I'll sketch like a really bad idea um, that I know is bad and I give myself permission for it to be really bad. It's just like a really quick, basic childlike scribble of the camera angle and the sort of shapes like the dynamics of what's going to be in the foreground and background. Um, and then I do that for the entire book. And then I go back through and I start assembling those onto what resembles a comic book page. So what are going to be the larger panels for more impact or what are going to be the thin, narrow, uh, vertical panels to create more of like a panning eye motion or something. A lot of it's based on your own internal sensibilities and, and what visuals appeal to you, but also what you learn along the way and just hunches and ideas. Um, and that's kind of a hard thing to teach. After that point, um, I'll create a more visually communicative rough. It's still simple, but the shapes are a little bit more obvious as far as what they are, like a facial expression instead of just a word scribble. Usually I'll account for all the different word balloons as well. So the process that I just described as far as the rough layouts, that takes maybe four to five days but it's where all of the work actually happens. The rest of it is execution and it's lengthy, it's time consuming. Um, but the roughs process is, takes up every nook and cranny I have in my conscious brain. Um, and there's no room for anything to be on in the background. Uh, I can listen to music, but only if it's music I've heard a million times and nothing new because it'll disrupt my thought process because there's all this stuff that's not working, but you have to go through the process of it not working to find the solutions that will work. And sometimes that's a very frustrating time. And then after that, there's many, many days of long hours. That's like the detail and the structure and trying all the shading and stuff. But that stuff, it's not that it's easy. It's just that it takes up less of your brain. You can have stuff in the background. You can talk to people while you're drawing. I'm doing all the inking as well. That's not always the case. There's some people who would draw just the pencils, and then they'll give that to another person who inks it and, and makes it look nice and clean and, and ready for reproduction. But since I'm doing both the pencils and the inks or ink wash, I then scan in the finished line art. I'll share a high res to the colorist and to the editors so that they can get it in front of a letterer and, and that sort of stuff. So then there's downstream customers from there. And they do the color work on their side? Correct. Yeah. The colorist I've been working with the last few years is a guy named Jeremy Caldwell, who is very good at coloring ink wash work, which can be kind of challenging because it's not uh, it's not as common. It's really easy to mess up ink wash uh, in the color stage. And then another artist who is doing lettering, all the word balloons. And that's kind of an invisible art that can make or break your eye flow because all the work I've done in trying to direct the eye with actions and like the way somebody punches will indicate how your eye flows to the page because you're literally following the trajectory of his arm or the result of the guy getting hit. Um, but if, the, if a letterer comes in and doesn't know what they're doing, they can start putting word balloons in places that don't complement the flow and they can disrupt 
the whole page. Um, but I've been fortunate, especially on Batman Ninja Turtles, working with a guy, um, his name is Tom Napolitano. He's a veteran and he's awesome. And I've put him into some really difficult positions sometimes where I've drawn a little too much. And so now he has to think outside of the box and he's really good at that sort of thing. In the film world, if your job is just to write the screenplay, you know, if you're not director, writer or or something like that, it's really a no-no to uh, describe camera angles. You also don't really want to try to direct the performances. I mean, you're describing uh, emotion in parentheticals and that sort of stuff, but it's your job more than anything else to sort of just lay out the facts of what people are saying and where and where they are and as much as possible leaving it up to the director, the cinematographer and the actors to interpret. I think that there's some of that going on here too and it's it's probably fair to say that your role as the comic book artist is kind of most like a director on a film. I would agree with that. There's there's a level of getting into the mind of the character that you're drawing and how they might hold their body. And if they're really strong, then maybe they're picking up a car and look very effortless. And so their back is very straight. It's no big deal. Um, or if it's a character who has enhanced strength, but a car is still very heavy for them, the way that you would arch their back and, and how many veins are sticking out where you're really showing the strain of them lifting. There's some acting involved in there as well and stage lighting and all that stuff. So it might have to do with, you know, like a, a combined role of director and director of photography and then also, I don't know, some sort of acting something. Well, and the, the colorist is, is something of a, of a director of photography as well. That's true. Directors of photography partner with a colorist in post-production because color grading is, is most related to the lighting that was on the day. What a colorist, some, not always, but will sometimes uh, provide is the entire comic book issue it's just you can't even see the individual actions of what's happening on the page, but it's like you know twenty or thirty individual thumbnails of the whole issue, and you can see the color storytelling. You can see the color language of each scene where it begins and ends, so that you're creating hopefully a chapter break even in your colors. That even if there was no lettering there, the reader would know that it's the, a new mood or what mood you're establishing just with the color language, and that kind of becomes invisible as well to the reader. The reader will probably credit the artist me for the difference in mood because I've, I've helped to contribute to it, but the, the coloring really informed it a lot more than what I did. And your workflow is still all paper, ink, and then scan. There's never a Cintiq or Wacom tablet involved. I work digital for layouts and then I'll print out the layout in light gray or light blue or in black, depending on what uh, I'm trying to do with the page onto uh, the Bristol board. So Bristol board is, is like a thick uh, card stock that holds ink very well. So you can really work the page and it won't like fray up or bleed too much. Um, and then I'll execute the page traditionally using ink wash and pen and ink and whatever white out and all this stuff. Um, and then after that's done, then I scan it back in. So it goes digital, traditional, then digital again, technique and structure and texture wise. There's a lot of accidents that happen on the page where you're not, you didn't actually mean for that exact thing to happen on the paper, but there's a organic give and take between you and the paper that it's harder to replicate or sometimes impossible to do digitally. So, uh, usually there's a, uh, you know, if you're using a digital tool, um, it's very powerful, but sometimes it'll give you a samey same result throughout your individual hand pressure and the amount of ink you've loaded onto the brush and the finish of the paper in that specific area. Those are all variables and other things, humidity in the air and all this stuff in traditional world, but on digital, it, it's much more predictable looking. Um, so I love digital, don't get me wrong, uh, but I, I like the rendering aspects and the give and take of working on paper for the execution of, of uh, inking and 
shading and that sort of thing. All the happy and organic imperfections that sort of uh, translate humanity into the art, kind of. Yes. I mean, there's some negatives for sure. Uh, there was once where I was working on Batman Ninja Turtles Volume 2, and there was this page I almost had completely done. I gone to the Baltimore Comic Con, and when we were flying back, I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder with a stocky friend next to me and then a stocky stranger on this side. So we're all like this, and I'm drawing. I've got like a little lap desk, and I'm drawing on the plane because uh, you've got deadlines to hit, so you draw anywhere you can. <sighs> and I had whiteout. This is the whiteout pen that I use. Um, it's called Posca. It's like a thin little whiteout pen. And you can hear it has a little ball bearing in there, right? So you're in a pressurized cabin. And I didn't think about this, but to get the the whiteout to flow, you have to compress the tip of the whiteout pen. And because it's a pressurized cabin, oh my gosh, this page was almost done. And I had this little bitty spot that I needed to touch up. And as soon as I compressed the tip, all, because we're in a pressurized cabin, this huge blob of very runny whiteout went bloop and ran down the page. Oh god! And oh my god! I feel like even now I'm feeling anxious, like describing it because I'm reliving this, and my eyes just got huge. And I was looking down at it, and I didn't have like even any uh, paper towels to mop it up or anything. So I just used my hands, and I like tried to scoop up as much on my hands of the whiteout that I could. And my friend David Yarden, who's one of the Aussie artists that we were good friends and we travel everywhere, we had just come back from uh, Baltimore Con together. He he was sitting there because he's working on rough layouts for a Jean Grey cover for Marvel or something, and he looks over and he's like. His, his eyes were like, whoa. And I looked over and I, it's like I was looking to him kind of for help or like, could he suggest anything? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my hands are covered in white out. Yeah. And he just goes, man, there's just nothing you can do. You just gotta like, <laughs> he's like, just relax. And you know, you're going to have to mess with it when we get home. It's not as good as it would have been, I don't think. But basically what I had to do, because that white out, it's not exactly water soluble, but it's, it's kind of vulnerable to water. So, uh I basically just had to use like a really wet paper towel and try to mop it up. But the whole time I'm doing that, I'm like ruining all this other rendering and stuff on the page. Uh, and then after that thoroughly dried, then I went back over it and tried to re-ink a bunch of stuff. And it it looked, I mean, it looked pretty good afterwards, but it was surprising that it turned out that way. Anyway, so that if I was working digital, that would never be a problem. And if I'm working in a pressurized cabin or not, it's not going to be a problem. There's other stuff too. I've, I've fallen asleep at the board and dropped the ink wash brush that I was working on and it rolled down the page and went right, right over Raphael's face. And so I had to wait for that to fully dry and then white out his face and then reform it and try to build back oh my in God. my mid-tones and highlights and stuff. Those are kind of few and far between because I try to be very careful. But, um, oh man, that was scary. You know, I drew The Flash for almost a year. I was really into The Incredibles. The movie The Incredibles had come out like about a year before that. So I went with this much bigger head sort of cartoony feel and it just did not work at all. Like in retrospect, it didn't work out. After that, I did Green Arrow. Uh, which was right before, right around the time that it got its own TV show. And that was a much more mainstream pen and ink style. Um, and then a book called The Movement. At the time, it sold basically nothing. Um, but it has been getting some interest recently because it, it dealt with a lot of marginalized groups. I was working with Gail Simone, who's a writer who is very much in tune with you know marginalized groups and minority groups. And so it focused on that a lot more than most mainstream comic books did or even do now. I did a book called Brain Boy over at Dark Horse, which is what, that's one of the worst names I've ever heard, Brain Boy. But it's actually... A really good, uh, well-written story written by Fred Van Lente, who uh, so it was Fred and Freddy who were <laughs> who were working on this really fun, unusual storyline. He's a psionic character, and he physically made somebody 
like shoot themselves in the face. Um, and that's something you could just never draw it at DC because it's like right on camera, so to speak. You actually see the dude shooting himself. I also wrote and illustrated a book called The DC Comics Guide to Digitally Drawing Comics. It talks about using Adobe Photoshop to create comic books either 100% digital or just using it for your layouts or just digital inks because there's a couple of different chapters in there about hybrid workflows. And I very much work currently the same method that I call the ink hybrid workflow. And I'm, I'm not the first comic book artist to work 100% digital or use digital tools. I was just the first one to write a book about it. At Dark Horse, I drew a uh, eight-page Conan short story. I had been working in uh, pen and ink and ink wash and all this, all these different styles along the way. But uh, for Conan, I drew all eight pages in ink wash and its sequentials. That became like a small proof of concept for myself and for editors later on if I could maintain that sort of stamina it takes for ink wash and if it didn't get too muddy and that sort of thing. The Conan short story was one of the things that got me hired for Batman Ninja Turtles because it was like, here's my drawings of Batman and the Turtles. Here's my eight-page short story that you can see I can do sequentials in this style. And that's what I want to do the Batman Ninja Turtles book in. I had heard that there was going to be some IDW DC crossovers they were in the works, but I'd heard this for about two years where you would hear rumors of it but it just you'd never see anything announced so i just assumed that the business still fell through because that kind of stuff happens all the time um and then one day i saw a uh, retweet in my twitter of my editor at the time jim chadwick he was tweeting about a uh, crossover of green lantern and star trek and uh, that's idw and dc doing their first crossover together and i thought oh, well, if they're doing this crossover, they're probably doing others. They probably worked out the paperwork or the contracts and stuff. And so I emailed Jim Chadwick and said, hey, if you happen to be wanting to do a Batman Ninja Turtles thing, I'd love to be considered. And here's my here's the Conan short story, and here's my other Ninja Turtle artwork that I'd done some covers and stuff for, for IDW for their Ninja Turtle series. And he said, well, we're actually talking about that right now. They were joking in the DC offices that I must have been psychic because that day they were talking about the art selection for Batman Ninja Turtles. In my whole life, I've never had that good of timing to like actually email on the day of or something. Um, and so I got really, really fortunate that because it, it, it's like a total trajectory change uh, for how my career was going, which I still liked. I still enjoyed the things I was drawing, but suddenly I was drawing these much more popular intellectual properties, stuff that was have been important and fun for me and, and everybody of my, my generation. Batman Ninja Turtles led to He-Man Thundercats and led to more Batman Ninja Turtles, and then Injustice versus Masters of the Universe. I just recently did a series of covers for, there's a crossover of Transformers and the Terminator, um, so I actually haven't read the script or anything, but it's just like whenever IDW approached me, I was like, yeah, sounds awesome. You know? Um, so I don't, uh, you know, I would love to draw crossover stuff the, the rest of my life. <laughs> if you did Power Rangers, uh, Justice League, I, I, I would, I would freak out. <laughs> yeah, I would Power love Rangers, to do anything. that. Yeah. Power Rangers plus anything. I'm happy. Yes. Yeah. Did you see, I, so I had no involvement in what I'm about to say, but, uh, there, there was a Ninja Turtles Power Rangers crossover that just came out. I heard about I, it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really well drawn. I haven't read it, but it's really well drawn. It's a very totally different style than what I draw in, but I mean, it's still awesome. Does that bring us up to to modern day? Yes. Yeah. I mean, since the Batman Ninja Turtles started all the crossover stuff, um, that has changed the the amount of travel that I usually do. As soon as I was attached to this high profile of a gig, um, there was a lot more invitations to do international travel. So we've done shows in Australia, in London. Uh, Dublin, Ireland, Hawaii, which I know is not international, but it may as well be <laughs> as far as, the, you know, how far you're traveling and stuff. Did that change your relationship with the audience where uh, before you were kind of the man behind the pen? Or do you find that readers 
kind of know their artists already. That's a good question. I, I've seen a the combination of working on Batman Ninja Turtles and then also being on the Red Letter Media stuff um, has increased my facial recognition, um, like in airports or in Target or uh, at Universal Studios. These are all places that, or at a hotel or something where... Um, they'll either know me from drawing the comic books or from seeing me on Red Letter Media. Because you're in your own private world, even though you're in a public space, and then somebody who you don't know is walking up to you and you think, oh, I need to get out of their way or they're selling something to me. Like, like That's where your brain just immediately goes to. And then they're like, um, hey, aren't you that guy from, or aren't you Freddie Williams? And then you're like, oh, what? <laughs> it's such a strange, jarring it's usually pleasant because they're they're there just to say something nice and then leave, but um, it's pretty pretty unusual. That only started in the last like maybe six or seven years, right? Correct. Yeah. So there's like a period of time where you were just like, you know, I I draw for DC, but nobody knows it. Yes, unless you know you're at a convention, then it's like there's a concentration of the small minority of people who might know who you are. Because like when you're traveling from one panel to the to the other, <laughs> this is so silly, but like you'll usually I'll uh, flip my name tag arounds. I mean, not that it's that big of a deal. It's not like there's people who are clamoring for me, but I'm, I'm trying to reduce that just so I can get to the next destination. Yeah. It's, a, it's the clo close sign. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the other <laughs> side, it says closed for conversation. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had pleasant interactions. Um, most recently, we were in Australia, and there was a concierge. He knew me from the Red Letter Media stuff. So he knew I drew comic books only through that, because on Red Letter Media, they say that I draw comics. Every time I saw him, he wanted to ask me questions about them. There's nothing wrong with it. It was just a little uh, jarring. In his eyes, you're like famous by association. Yeah, I'm a couple degrees away from the, the group of friends that he would love to be a part of. Yeah, just one one step away. Yeah, I actually have I have the Feeding Frenzy DVD here, which you did the, <laughs> co the cover art for. Those guys made the made that movie. So Kiki's aunt, who we stay with out in uh, San Diego, she lives out in San Diego, and every year we go out there for the big convention and we hang out with her, and she's, she's a riot. She's in her 80s now. She's trying to collect everything that I draw. I got two comp copies of Feeding Frenzy from Red Letter Media, and I sent her one. And then uh, after we sent it, uh, about a week later, Kiki and I were like, hey, let's watch Feeding Frenzy, because I hadn't seen it yet. And in the first five minutes, there's, you know, Mr. Plinkett is... <laughs> Doing horrible things. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, what did I send to your late 70s aunt? That opening scene was giving me the flop sweat, as I describe it. I was just sitting there going, Ugh. When they started making Space Cop, I offered to draw a cover for that as well. And uh, they said, we would love for you to draw a piece as long as we can use it for like a print and for t-shirts and stuff. But um, they had gotten... Uh, there was a bunch of people who thought Feeding Frenzy was going to be a cartoon because it has mm. a drawn and illustrated cover. And so they, they wanted to have something that wasn't a cartoon on the cover for Space Cop. So I still did a piece of artwork and uh, that they used as a print for fundraising and, you know, merchandising and stuff like that. I had that problem. My, my first feature, the poster was, I thought, a beautifully drawn medley of, of all the characters in, in a in very cartoonized fashion. And yeah, when we were shopping at the Troma, they thought they were like, well, we don't normally like take on animated stuff. And we were like, no, no, you have to watch the movie, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, watch even <laughs> one second of the movie, please. But then finally, they ended up making a uh, Batman Ninja Turtles movie, which I've seen and love, by the way. I think they did a a really nice job with it. We heard rumors about that for a couple of years. I had zero involvement, but James, the, the writer for the, the comic book and I, we kept hearing rumors that Warner Brothers and or Nickelodeon or Joint Venture were working on the animated movie, but we didn't see anything. We didn't know how it was going. We just heard rumors. And then we finally got like the official announcement. They actually misspelled my name uh, in the opening credits. So Freddie is spelled correctly. 
And Williams almost looks like it's spelled correctly, but they missed the second I. So it's as if my last name is Willems. Oh, Willems. And that to me was hilarious. I love the idea of you being presented with a prestigious award or something of, of note. And then there's some very obvious detail that's off about it. Or if like the announcer is calling you up on stage and then he accidentally belches into the microphone or something. I find that really endearing and funny. It's actually funnier that way or, or better that way or something. So when I was at the DC offices and I showed them that, who I was talking to was a guy named Ben. He was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. We misspelled it. Like he was, he, you know, the movie's been out for several months. It's like in his mind, he's probably thinking, can we recall it? Or yeah, is there going to be a problem? Yeah. And I just started laughing. I said, no, it's it's actually pretty funny and I explained to him the same way I just to you and he goes oh okay well then uh, you're welcome <laughs> like <laughs> if you think it's funny and you prefer it that way then you're welcome for us having made that mistake you know but I absolutely love the first fight scene between Shredder and Batman and that I wish we had had the room in our comic book series you know there's only a certain number of pages that we have allotted for each issue so we had to like turn what we wanted to be an epic fight scene into like three pages which is not very much room at all to show a fight scene between Shredder and and Batman, two of the best martial artists that would you know exist, uh, we would have wanted to draw like a whole twenty page issue of that or something. And I saw that the the movie then led to some merchandise like Bat Mikey and stuff like that. It must be cool for you, even if that was specifically from the movie. The fact that your book inspired a successful animated movie that's now inspiring successful merchandise. It's, it, it just must be awesome. It's like a little taste of what Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird must have felt. It's like just a little bitty drop of that because, you know, they, at some point, you know, it was 100% within the control of just those two guys. And then they got to see it in the 80s just explode out and now they're witnessing it taking on, on multiple lives of, of different styles and different tones of the Ninja Turtles. I actually felt like I had an, a little bit of an out-of-body experience while watching the movie. It's like seeing a home movie of an event that you know very well in your mind and then seeing something totally different happen and you're like, whoa, whoa, I was there for that. That's not what happened. It must be like when a biopic is made about somebody but they're not involved and then they watch the biopic and they're like, that's not, like they completely made up a fact about my life? Yeah, um, basically in the comic book, Shredder throws down a smoke bomb and leaves. So the first encounter between the two of them is more like a standoff of now we know who each other are. And in the animation shredder tries to leave but batman shoots a grapple hook at him and like lassos him and sh that makes shredder angry and then they have this amazing fight and as soon as that difference happens i felt a, this is so weird i felt like a, a difference in the pressure in the room and i felt like i was behind myself watching me watch the film it was very weird i've never felt that before so i do have one final question Mm -hmm. Who is your favorite turtle and why? I think Leonardo. I think that's an uncommon response because he's the wet blanket because he's the leader that's trying to rein in Mikey and Raph and stuff. But I've, I've just always been drawn to leadership types. And I like the idea of being put into a position of authority over a group of peers, but you still have an authority figure over you, which would be Splinter. He's basically the father, like the tiebreaker of the group. I would love to tell a story about Leonardo taking over as leader of the Turtles after Splinter dies of old age or battle or whatever it is, because he's the field leader, but Raph and, and Mikey are not necessarily always willing to listen. But if he literally became like the leader of their order, it's a different type of dynamic. So anyway, I've always liked Leo. I created style guides for all the Turtles and how I would draw Batman. 
and I tried to make visually distinctive each turtle from one another so that it wasn't just the same turtle four times with different color bandanas. They have different body shapes, different head shapes, but Leonardo looks the way that he did in the Mirage era, or the original Turtles version. He doesn't have like the beaky sort of face of the very original Turtles, but the iconic version of the Turtles, what you think of when you think of the Turtles from the 80s and 90s, that's essentially what Leo still looks like. And to me, he's like the heart of the team or like the, he's the backbone or the core of the team. I think the reason he finds himself not being the main character or, or the thrust of the story a lot of the time is because he's somewhat resolved. He's pretty confident that he's walking the right path. I think the reason why stories center around Raph most of the time is because he's really kind of not sure he's on the right path, which is a very teenage idea too. One of my favorite Ninja Turtles moments is in the 1990 movie when he comes home after having his scuff with Casey Jones and Splinter insists that he come talk to him. As soon as he, he takes a breath, basically, he realizes that he is in some turmoil. That you know that this 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 anger that he keeps acting out is because he's growing up, <laughs> and and he needs guidance. I think that movie is brilliant on a number of levels. I but, agree. But most of all, the fact that they took away the father figure, especially when Raph needs it the most. To add to that, as far as uh, Leo creates the baseline so that when Mikey does something goofy or Raphael does something that's outrageous or brash or something, you have something to establish it from. So if you have that bedrock and then Raphael does something, you can contrast the two personalities. And Donnie is always going to basically, he sits right in that or even a little bit below it because he's so passive most of the time. And So have you ever heard of shipping? Do you know what shipping is? In the No. All right. So you're perfect for this. All right. So I'm on stage on a panel in Australia for and it's a Ninja Turtle panel. We're opening to questions and somebody asks, why do you think Raphael and Leo ship so often together? And I said, what's that? So I'm picturing like a shipping schedule because there's like sometimes there's uh, one shot issues or a micro series of like just a Raphael miniseries or just a Leo miniseries. And they're like, no, no. Like, why do you think that they're so often put together. So I'm looking around trying to get like uh, indications or clues from anybody else in the audience. And people are looking at me. Some people are like, like they're waiting for me to answer this question. And other people also look confused. And I said, well, um, because they have such a difference in personality that there's always going to be a tension between the two of them. And, and while I'm answering this, the person in the back who asked this original question is going like, like they look so excited. Well, John Samariva, the Australian artist who I was on stage with, and he's also drawn the Ninja Turtles, he goes, he goes, wait, wait, I think shipping means something different than what you think it is. And I said, well, what does it mean? And he goes, well, it's, it's in like the fan community. Shipping is like fan fiction when they're intimate together. So oh. shipping means putting two characters together in an intimate fan fiction. Oh, I have no idea. I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know. Cause like, I felt like I had now joined into a conversation that I was surprised by, like I was ambushed by this subject matter. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I apologized to them. And I said, I actually don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> like, so what she was asking is how come there's so much fan fiction with Leo and, and Raph who are brothers being Got intimate it. with one another. I don't know the answer to that. It was just a, something I had never even heard of before. So, <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Listen, thank you for being so generous with your time to do this. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, like I said. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great chatting with you. I really enjoy your content, so keep up the great work. You have a Facebook page people can follow. You have a website. Yeah, my website is freddyart.com. On Facebook, I'm Freddie Art. On Instagram, I'm Freddie Art. Twitter, I'd be Freddie Art as well. So Freddie Art is the thing to search for. <laughs> Check it out. Pick up Batman Ninja Turtles. Pick up He-Man Thundercats and keep following. Freddie Williams. 
I'm gonna. Thank you, Frankie. I appreciate it.